0: Good morning, everyone. Today's passage is from Genesis 4, verses 1 to 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. It's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground.
1: Thanks, Alicia. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. So if you were here earlier this year, at the start of the year, we started a series looking at the book of Genesis. Is it just me or am I really loud today? I'm really loud today. Can we turn my voice down a little bit? Um, yeah, earlier in the year, we started a series looking at the book of Genesis. And we, earlier in the year, made it through Genesis chapter 3, and then we stopped and we've looked at. Uh, some parables of Jesus in Luke, and we've looked at some stuff on loving the city. And now we're gonna jump back in where we left off in Genesis because there's so much more for us to learn in Genesis. And since it's been a while since we've been in Genesis, I wanted to just start with a brief recap of where we've been so far. So if you weren't here or if you've forgotten, you can be up to speed. So in the beginning, God makes the world and everything in it. And the highlight of his creation is that he makes humanity in his image. He creates a man and a woman, and he tells them, it's your job to work together to rule over this world that I've made. And he tells them, you have one command. This whole beautiful garden that I put you in, you can eat any of the fruit in any of the trees in the entire garden, except one. And I know to us, it it seems like that's sort of arbitrary of God. It sounds like something that God would do just to sort of make their lives miserable, but that wasn't the goal. Actually the way that God designed humanity is that we work best when we live with God at the center of our existence. And this command forced the man and the woman each day to live with God at the center of their existence. But, they disobey. Rather than live in the joy and freedom of God's beautiful garden, they decide maybe God's holding out on us. Maybe God has something good that could be ours, but that he doesn't want us to have. And maybe the way to get that is by eating that fruit that he said not to eat. And so they eat the fruit to try and become God themselves and get the things that God's holding out on. And they eat the fruit. They think they can access everything good in life. And yet Instead, when they eat that fruit, everything good starts to unravel. They realize they're naked. they run away from God. They shift the blame and and try to avoid taking responsibility for their actions. Death enters the world and God comes and he pronounces curses on this good creation that he's made because of the man and the woman's disobedience. That's Genesis one through three. But that passage, even though it seems like everything's gone wrong. Everything's a mess. It still ends with hope because even though this man and the woman, they decide to listen to the snake who tells them to eat the fruit rather than obey God. And they follow this snake on a path to death. God promises the end of the story is not the snake's victory. The end of the story is that there's gonna be a war between humanity and the snake and humanity is going to win when one of the women's descendants comes and crushes the snake on a head. The snake will be defeated once and for all it will die. And so as we get to the end of Genesis chapter three, where we left off last time, the world is broken. Life is hard. We have some clarity on where we came from and we understand what's gone wrong, but We only have the slightest of hints on how things could possibly get better, but we have a hint. We know we need to look out for an offspring of the woman. She's gonna have a baby, and one of those babies is gonna be our rescuer, who's gonna be the one who comes and makes things right. The hope of humanity rests on this woman's offspring being able to crush the serpent so we can be free. And that's exactly where today's passage in Genesis four picks up. This woman has two sons at the start of the passage. We're ready for the rescue to begin. And yet that's not what we see in this passage. If you were paying attention at all to the scripture reading we just had, because actually this rescue is gonna move in a surprising direction. These next several chapters of Genesis four through 11 are arguably one of the darkest and most depressing stretches in the entire Bible. We're ready for the rescue to begin. And yet over and over in these chapters, things go from bad to worse to worse. Because time after time, humanity tries to come up with our own solution to what's gone wrong in the world and to what's broken in the world. And each time we try to fix the problem, it only makes things worse. The author of Genesis, he really wants us to feel how desperate our human condition is and how deeply we need God to step in and rescue us because we are utterly and totally incapable of rescuing ourselves. And we get the first glimpse of that reality in today's passage in Genesis chapter four. So today we're gonna look at this story of Cain and Abel. We're gonna see that idolatry leads to anger, which leads to murder. And our points will be idolatry, anger, murder, and a better way. But first let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even when things go wrong, you are a God of hope, you're a God of promises, and you're a God who keeps your promises. I pray that as we look at your word today, that you would be teaching us from it, that you'd be showing us uh, what you want us to learn from it and how we can follow you and obey you better this week and love you more deeply this week because of this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see in this passage is idolatry. I think as we look at this story of Cain and Abel, one thing that's maybe important to point out is in our world, The general message that's taught in society is that humanity, is it fundamentally good or evil? If you ask around society, the average person on the streets, is humanity generally good or evil? I think among the people on the streets, they would say humanity, generally good, right? There's some bad apples. There are crazy murderers who go around and stab people in the mall, but they're the exception. They're not the normal ones. Right, Most of us are are fundamentally different than them. Most of us are incapable of doing something so horrible and senseless. That's the message that we generally hear in the world. And if that's what you believe about the state of humanity and what we are like at the deepest level of our beings, you're gonna miss everything this passage has to teach us. Because when we come to a passage like the story of Cain and Abel, with that perspective, it's really easy to look at the passage and be like, well, this is about a murderer. This is about one of those super bad people that has nothing to do with me. If I'm going to see myself in this story as anyone, I'm probably the able in this story because I definitely can't be the Cain." But the Bible presents a different take on humanity than our society does. It says that at the core, yes, there is a level of goodness inside all of us because we're made in God's image. We have some level of goodness that God has hardwired into us. And yet all of us are bearing that image in a broken or distorted way. Ever since Adam and Eve ate that fruit in the garden, we all have this cancer inside of us that the Bible calls sin. It's not just that, that evil comes at us from the outside, like the snake in the garden who slithers up to Eve and says, come on, eat the fruit, eat the fruit. It's that now there's evil coming at us from the inside as well. The passage calls it sin and sin is refusing to live by God's standard and doing life our way instead. It's refusing to live by God's standard and doing life our way instead. It's saying, God, I don't want you on the throne of the universe because I can do a better job running things than you can. So you stand back, stay out of the way, let me do things my way and things will work better for everyone. And as we're gonna see, as we go through this passage, sin, God describes it as an enemy that wants to eat us, which means there are two things that can happen with our sin. Either we kill it or it kills us. There's an old theologian named John, John Owen. And he said, be killing your sin or it will be killing you. Those are the only two options. You starve it, you crush it, you beat it down. So there's nothing left or you feed it, you water it, you help it grow stronger so that it can pounce on you and destroy you. And this means that when we look at Cain in today's passage, this biblical perspective on humanity, that we're good image bearers of God who are broken and bearing that image in a distorted way because of the sin inside us, that actually Cain isn't an example of a super crazy person who's way worse than any of us could ever be. Actually, Cain is a man who in far more ways than we ever want to admit, is just like us. It's just that rather than kill that sin inside him, he waters it, he feeds it, it grows until it's big enough to eat him. And then it grows to a level where hopefully none of us will ever get to that level or experience it, but it grows to a level where it leads him to murder. But the thing that sets us apart from him isn't that we're somehow different than him. It's not that we're somehow morally superior to him because we're just better. It's God's grace, that's it. And so as we look at this story of Cain and Abel, we're gonna see what we can learn for ourselves from this tragic story, but we're gonna look at it from that perspective of way more like Cain than we ever want to acknowledge or, or recognize. So as we start, this passage in Genesis four, like I said, it starts with Eve producing offspring. And remember, this is a time for hope. We're looking out for one of these babies, probably the firstborn one, Cain, to be the one who will crush the snake once and for all, who will rescue humanity, who will put us back on the good path that God made us for. The baby's here, it's time for a rescue. And then the passage tells us that, that Cain and his brother Abel, both of them make offerings to God which if you're looking for someone who's going to be the great rescuer, who's going to save humanity, that's a great start, right? He's going, he's making an offering to God. He's on the path to being a good, godly rescuer for humanity. But then there's a surprise because God does not accept Cain's sacrifice. It says that God has regard for Abel's sacrifice but not for Cain's. Cain, the one that we're expecting to be the rescuer has just hit a bump in the road and maybe he'll course correct or, or maybe actually Abel's the one that we should be looking to for rescue. And if you're wondering why does God accept Abel's sacrifice but not Cain's, actually the passage gives us a hint as to that. Did you notice in verse three, it says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering But then in verse four, it says, Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The firstborn is the best of the animals. The fat portions are the best part of the best animal. When when Cain brings an offering, he brings eh, something. When Abel brings something to God, he brings his absolute best. Cain brings something less and God says, that's not good enough. And the passage doesn't tell us why they brought these offerings in the first place, but we do have a hint of what Cain was trying to accomplish by the offering. See, after they make the offerings, Cain's offering is rejected because he didn't bring God his best. He's angry. He's upset and God comes and God has a conversation with him to try and set him on the right path. And God says, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Now the Hebrew word translated accepted right there, usually when it appears in our Bible, it's actually translated as something like dignity or majesty or being lifted up. It's a word that refers to someone being lifted up to have a high status. So it sounds from this conversation, like what Cain really wants in this whole process of making an offering is that he wants status. He wants to be the kind of person that when he walks down the street and people see him walking down the street, they look at him and they think that Cain, he's really someone. He wants to be the type of person that when he looks out at everyone around him, he knows, oh, I'm so much better than them. He wants to be the type of person that when he thinks about God, thinking about Cain, he's like, man, when God thinks about Cain, I put a smile on his face. That's what he wants in life. It's the thing that gets him out of bed in the morning. God himself, take it or leave it. As long as I can get this status, that's the really important thing. I wanna be lifted up. I wanna be majestic. I wanna be dignified. Cain has his deepest hope and joy and confidence in his heart. That place that should belong to God alone is actually filled by a desire for status. So when I say that Cain has an idol, that's what I'm talking about. He's looking to something other than God to get him through the day. He's put something other than God at the the deepest center of his being of what he's pursuing. And this idol, this desire for status on some level is what led him to make that offering to God. Apparently he thought by bringing this offering to God, God's gonna accept me. God's gonna give me his stamp of approval. My status in life will increase because I've done something good for God. But there's a problem. See, when, when our true deepest goal in life is to be liked and respected and lifted up and to have status, there's a limit to what we're gonna be willing to give God. We can't give Him our very best because actually having the best things is part of what makes us likable and respectable and gives us status. Part of how we know we're better than everyone else is because we have better stuff than them. And and I can't give that stuff up because then I'm actually sacrificing the status that I'm trying to get by giving it up. And the reality is true, whether the thing you want is status or whether it's something else. If the thing you really, really want in life, the thing that controls your heart on a day-to-day basis is something other than God, you're never gonna be free to give God your absolute best if your heart at the deepest level is controlled by something other than God, you're never gonna be free to give God your absolute best. So Cain comes, he makes an offering to God, but it's something less than his best and God is not okay with it. And that leaves Cain angry and sad. And so far, doesn't Cain seem like a totally normal, relatable person? You can think of people that, have, that you know who do this, who seek their deepest identity in life from something other than God. I mean, if we're honest, we all do this ourselves, right? The default state of our hearts is to turn to things other than God for our deepest hope and security and joy. It's to believe that the thing I really need to be who I wanna be is something other than than God. Whether you're a Christian or not, all of us do this in some way, shape, or form. And and maybe you're just like Cain. The thing you want is status. I want people to like me and respect me and accept me. I want to be able to walk down the street or look in the mirror and know that I'm someone great. Maybe you're a little bit different. Maybe for you, it's security. You know, I, I want to know my future is provided for, I want to know that I have ways to stay safe and have enough, even if everything else goes wrong in life. And if I have that, I know I'm okay. Maybe it's having power. If I can tell other people what to do and have them do it, I know I'm somebody. Maybe it's comfort. If I have things going exactly the way I want them to go in life, then I'm okay. I'm all set. Regardless of your idol of choice, the default state of all our hearts is just like Cain to rely on those things rather than God to help us know we're enough. It's to count on those things rather than God to get us through the day. And just like Cain, when our true hope is in any of these things and we're trying to worship the real God, our worship is gonna be half-hearted at best. Because at best, God is a means to getting the other things we really want. And at worst, God is an obstacle to us getting the other things we really want. But at the end of the day, it's not God that we really want. It's these other things. And just like Cain, when we don't get these things we want in life, it leaves us angry and sad, which brings us to our second point, anger. See, when when God doesn't accept Cain's sacrifice, verse five tells us that Cain becomes angry. And that points us to a universal truth in life. It doesn't matter what your idol is, what your idol of choice is, when you don't get what you think you deserve from it, you become angry and sad. If you heard me listing out those different things like power and security and status and comfort that different people choose as idols, you're like, I don't even know which one is mine. First, it's probably multiple because that's the reality of the human heart. We turn to many different things to get us through the day. But second, one of the best tests to figure it out is just ask yourself, what makes me really angry? Because the things that make you really angry show what you are counting on. Our anger comes from feeling like someone has violated or threatened our idols of choice or feeling like our idols have let us down. I mean, one of my idols of choice is comfort. And I know this because when I am trying to do an activity that I enjoy, that that makes me feel good, and my children walk in and they just start jumping on me and I can't read my book, or they turn off the electricity and I can't play the guitar through the amp anymore. I get really angry at them because I just wanna be comfortable. I wanna have things go my way. The, the idol of comfort has been threatened or violated by my children and I'm angry because of it. We get angry when our idols are violated or, or threatened or when they let us down. And again, we can see that Cain is not that different from any of us. His idol let him down, he got angry. That's a normal human response to that situation. And in an amazing step of grace, God comes and he has a conversation with Cain to try and get him back on the right track. Which by the way, has anyone in here ever had this thought or this feeling like, if God really wants me to live for him and obey him and do what he calls me to do in life, if he would just show up and have a conversation with me and tell me he's real and tell me what he wants me to do in life, I would do it and I'd be all set. I know no one's putting your hands up, but I see it in your faces. We've all had that thought, right? This passage tells us that's not true at all because God shows up, he tells Cain, here's exactly what I want you to do. And how does Cain respond? He kills his brother anyway, right? (laughs) Having a conversation with God is not gonna make us obey if we're not obeying already. But God shows up and he says to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you sad? And God essentially says, you know the right thing to do in this situation. You know what I'm expecting in your sacrifice. You know what it will take for me to accept your offering and for you to be lifted up, which is really interesting, isn't it? Like God doesn't step in and say like, hey Cain, I know you had no idea what I was expecting of you. So let me just spell it out for you. No, he, he, he says, hey, you know the right thing to do. Just do it and you'll be okay. He's saying Cain's problem isn't a lack of knowledge or understanding, it's a lack of willingness to do what's expected of him by God. And again, isn't that a common attitude in our world today? There's an American author named Mark Twain, and he once said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. Anyone ever felt that way? It's exactly what Cain is going through here. The problem isn't that God's word is too confusing. I don't really know what he wants from me. The problem is I know what he wants from me and I don't like it. I don't want to do the things that he wants me to do. Again, isn't Cain just like us? And God continues his speech to Cain, essentially saying, you know the right thing to do. Do it and you'll be all set. But if you don't do it, you need to recognize you have an enemy and your enemy wants to destroy you. It's crouching at your door like a tiger just waiting to pounce on you as soon as you open up. So fight it with everything you have, Cain, because if you don't, it will kill you. Every time you and I face temptation to put something else other than God as the first thing we're pursuing in life. There's a battle going on. Our enemy sin, it's trying to gain a foothold in our life so it can kill us. And God is warning us just like he warned Cain, don't let it in. Fight it, kill it. Don't let it kill you. Turn to God's way instead. See, when when you sense that anger that Cain felt just welling up inside of you because things aren't going your way, that's a warning bell reminding you, check your heart because your enemy is creeping in without you even realizing what's going on. And if you don't stop him, he will destroy you. But of course, like we all do so often, Cain assumes that he knows better than God. So rather than listen to God, rather than obey, rather than fight this enemy, he brings his brother out to the field and he kills him. Which brings us to our next point, murder. I mean, that seems a bit extreme, right? Murder. I think for many of us, even if we've been able to relate to Cain up to this point, maybe at this point we feel a disconnect. Really murder? I don't think I could ever do that, right? But actually, the overwhelming testimony of the Bible is that even here, even in his murder of his brother, we're far more like Cain than any of us would like to admit. And I want to show you two passages from the New Testament that make this point. The first one is from James 1, 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, grown, brings forth death. So the first thing James wants us to see here is when we face temptation, that's not from God. That's actually from inside of us. God isn't the one tempting us to sin. But then he also wants us to see, sin follows a predictable progression. There's a predictable progression. It starts with desire. And this word that he uses for desire actually refers to a disordered desire. When I say a disordered desire, it doesn't mean we necessarily want something bad, although it could be that, but it's more so that we want something that's quite likely a good thing, but we want it more than we should. So for example, the desire for sex, is that a good or a bad desire? It wired into us by God. It's a good desire when used in the right way. But if our desire for sex becomes so strong that we start to pursue it outside of the God-given boundaries of marriage, a lifelong commitment, then what starts as a good desire becomes a disordered desire. It's desiring a good thing too much so that we do things that can be harmful or destructive because we have disordered desires. And idols always involve disordered desires. Idols always involve us loving something, almost always something good, but loving it way more than we should. And James says, if we let these disordered desires grow and, and just feed them and have room inside us to take root, it leads to sinful action and sinful action leads to death. In the case of Cain and Abel, that was a physical death of Cain murdering his brother. In other situations, it could be the death of a relationship because we just get so upset that we lash out at the person and we say things that tear friendships apart. In other situations, it could be the death of a reputation because we let our anger just lead us to spread nasty rumors about someone that tear down their reputation. Idolatrous desire left unchecked leads to sinful actions, which lead to death. It was the pattern Cain followed. It's the universal pattern that's followed any time we give those disordered desires more space in our hearts than we give to God. We're more like Cain than we want to admit. And the second verse that I want you to look at is from 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So again, this, this verse, it's true of all of us. Our struggles, the temptations we face, they're not unique. They're common human experiences, which hopefully is a really encouraging thing for you to hear, because it means when you face tough temptations, you're not the only one who's ever faced that. There are other people out there that have been through the same thing that you can talk to and find encouragement as you face this temptation. You're not alone in it. And there are other people who have overcome these temptations. So you can look to them for encouragement that God will help equip you to overcome it as well. And God gives us the strength to overcome it and escape. But here's the thing we need to recognize. If all the temptations that we face as humans are common to the rest of humanity. That's true for Cain too. His desire to act on his anger through murder. It's not something that only crazy people experience. It's not only something that super, super evil people experience. It's something that to some extent, in some way, shape, or form, the average person on the street experiences. Something that in some way, shape, or form, you and I share with him. The temptation doesn't mean he needs to act on it. It doesn't mean we need to act on it. God offers him and us a means of escape for every temptation we face. But we face the same types of temptations as Cain did. We're not that different from Cain. See, the reality is when we build our lives around things other than God, there comes a point where the only way to get what we really want in life is to take matters into our own hands. And at that moment, we can either do something to lift ourselves up, like commit fraud so we can get lots of extra money in our bank account so we can be greater, to manipulate others into doing what we want so we can advance ourselves, or we can take action by dragging others down to our level because then we can still be on top. But either way, the path we choose, it's a destructive one. For Cain, he chooses the path of trying to drag his brother down. Because if Cain's the only one left, then by default, he's on top. And this pattern of dragging others down, it's exactly what James is talking about when he says that sin leads to death. Now, thankfully by the grace of God, most of the time in our world, that doesn't result in physical murder. Can we all like thank God for that? But Jesus says that just to be angry at someone in our hearts, is a type of spiritual murder. And the things that flow out of us when we're operating out of that anger are always things aimed at bringing some type of pain or destruction or death. And it could be in big tragic ways, it could be in small silly ways, but that's the direction that it's moving towards pain, destruction, and death. Here's a silly example from my life. When I was younger, I had a a big crush on this girl at school. And I, like Cain, desired status. I wanted the status of being her boyfriend. I wanted to be able to walk around school holding her hand and have everyone know that I was someone special. And I wanted her to look at me and know that I was the greatest guy ever. I wanted status. Can anyone else relate to that? High school boys, you've been there? Yeah? No, never? Okay, you will someday. Just pay attention, learn from my mistakes. Don't make them yourself, okay? And you know what happened to this girl that I had this huge crush on? One of my best friends started dating her. Oh, come on, let's hear it. Yeah, thank you, thank you for your compassion. And, and I was crushed with a triple whammy because number one, I didn't get the status of being the boyfriend and having everyone know that I was someone special. Number two, I had to watch someone else do that right in front of my face. And number three, my my good friend being in a relationship with her actually took him away from being able to spend time with us as friends. Triple whammy. Boom. And I got sad about this. And as time went by, I got angry about this. And then one day, I acted. I knew her Facebook login info. (gasps) Oh, no. So one day, (laughs) I logged in, and I changed her status. I posted a few things aimed at making her look really silly and dumb. She had this profile picture that was her and her boyfriend together, so I I took it and I made some changes so it looked like there was a a chain around his neck that she was holding to, you know, (laughs) depict the fact that he had become her slave. Lots of mature stuff, right? I didn't do anything super serious that would get her in trouble, but a bunch of small things that were aimed at annoying her and making her upset like I was upset. And I know what you're thinking, Eric, that was silly and pathetic. And you're right. It was silly and pathetic. But when we're operating from this place of anger in our hearts, when we're operating from that emotional space that Cain was in, 90% of the things we do are silly and pathetic. And you know what the other 10% are? tragic and pathetic. It might be silly, it might be tragic. Either way, it's always pathetic. It's aimed at bringing some type of death into the world and spreading pain rather than love. When we give these idols and disordered desires this level of control over us, we never ever make good choices we end up doing things aimed at tearing others down and bringing some type of death into this world. And for those of you who are like, Eric, how did the story end? (laughs) Yes, I eventually owned up to what I did and apologized to her. Enough time had gone by that she had forgotten completely about it and she wasn't angry. And I'm very thankful that I ended up marrying Justine instead of her. There you go. (laughs) No, (laughs) well, I don't have Facebook anymore, so you know. But that doesn't change the fact. When we let idols control our hearts, it it leads to anger, that leads to sin, that leads to death. And that brings consequences, not only for the people around us, but for ourselves too. We see at the end of the passage, Cain gets consequences for his actions. The ground will no longer produce crops for him as easily as it once did. He's going to have to live as a wanderer and a fugitive and a nomad on the earth. He's never going to have a home. He's going to be sent away from God's presence, which I know on one level, God is everywhere. But Cain is no longer going to have that opportunity to know and experience God in a personal way like he once did. He's left homeless. He's left as an orphan trying to make his own way in the world. And that's a depressing way to end the passage, isn't it? like the one that we thought was gonna be the rescuer, the one that we thought was gonna defeat the snake, instead of crushing the snake's head, he joins the snake's team and, and murders the one who truly loves God. Cain can't be the rescuer because he's on the snake's side fighting against God. Abel can't be the rescuer because he's dead. Is there any hope for humanity? Is there any rescue possible? Well, yes and no. Let's look at a better way. See, part of the reason that these really depressing chapters of Genesis four through 11 are in the Bible is to help us see just how desperate the human condition is. As we'll see in the coming weeks, these chapters show us over and over and over again, our best solutions to this problem of sin only drive us further from God and make things worse. If there's gonna be a solution to this problem, it can't come from inside us because just like it did with Cain, the problem lives inside us. But that doesn't mean there is no solution. It just means the solution has to come from outside. And this passage points to something that's picked up in the New Testament that helps us see what that solution could be. Did you notice that after the murder, God comes to Cain and he confronts Cain and he says in verse 10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God hears the blood of Abel crying out to him for justice. And because he hears that blood, he actually places a curse upon Cain for what he's done. And actually, as we move to the New Testament, this idea of Abel's blood crying out is picked up in Hebrews chapter 11, verse four. It says, I think we have it on the screen. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended, which means he was approved of as righteous. He was right standing before God. God commending him or approving of him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, He still speaks. God hears the voice of his people's blood when it cries out for justice. The faith that Abel had, it doesn't just speak in that moment. It continues to speak down through the ages. But wait a second. Isn't that really bad news for us? Because we've just been trying to establish that in this Cain and Abel story, you and I are far more like Cain than we'd like to admit. And if Abel's blood is crying out for justice and it's still speaking and God hears that voice crying out, that means we're in trouble, right? <laughs> because we're the ones who deserve to have that justice fall on us. Well, that would be really, really bad news, except that just the next chapter, Hebrews verse, chapter 12, verse 24, it tells us there's another blood that speaks a better word for us than the blood of Abel. Here's what it says in Hebrews 1224, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and his sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why? Why does it speak a better word? How is it better for us? It's Because Abel's blood, when it was spilled, it cried out for God's justice on his attacker. But Jesus' blood, when it was spilled, cried out for God's justice to fall on him so his attackers can go free. Abel's blood brings a curse on his killer, but Jesus' blood bears the curse on behalf of his killers. Abel's blood brings consequences to the one who spilled it, but Jesus' blood brings freedom to anyone who trusts in him. See, is there hope for humanity? Is there hope for you and me, despite how broken the world is and how broken and messed up we are? Despite our similarities to Cain, despite the fact that we let our disordered desires lead us to sin and death and anger, is rescue available for us? Absolutely, but it's not found in ourselves. But because the blood of Jesus speaks a better word over us, a word that says we're free, We're loved, we're accepted. We have a home with God where we belong as His children. There is rescue available for us. And His blood speaks this word, not because we have sorted ourselves out, not because we've made ourselves good enough for God to love us through our hard effort, but because God at our worst loves us enough to rescue us from our own brokenness. So church, we're all far more like Cain than we'd like to admit. We have disordered desires that lead to wrong actions that lead to death, but despite how broken and messed up we are, despite how utterly unable we are to save ourselves, God hasn't given up on us. He sent his son to die for us so his blood can speak a better word for us than the blood of Abel, a word that gives us freedom and life. Let's pray. Father, we confess that each and every one of us has tried over and over and over again at different times, in different ways, with different solutions to build our lives around things that aren't you. And when we do that, it leads to anger. It leads to actions that try to spread death and pain and destruction in the world rather than love. And we need your forgiveness, God. Like the author of Psalm 51, we pray that you would create in us a clean heart. That you would take away that brokenness and replace it with your wholeness. That you would help us to rely this week on this blood of Jesus that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And help us to find our freedom in him and build our lives around you. God, we love us, teach us, we love you. We love us too much. It's a problem. We need to love you more. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.